Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, and they do it with mirrors. Where Miss Marple senses danger when she visits a friend living in a Victorian mansion, which doubles as a rehab center for delinquents. Her fears are confirmed when a youth fires a revolver at an administrator. Neither is injured, but a mysterious visitor is less fortunate, shot dead simultaneously in another part of the building. Pure coincidence? Miss Marple thinks not. This will be a five-part series, so sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Stonygates, the home of my old school friend Carrie Louise, where her husband, Louis Serracold, was running an establishment for juvenile delinquents. Three nights after my arrival, a seriously disturbed young man had locked Mr. Serracold in his study and fired at him with a pistol. But while all this was taking place, Carrie Louise's stepson, Christian Gulbranson, had been shot dead in his room. We present June Whitfield as Miss Marple in Agatha Christie's They Do It With Mirrors. We all gathered together in the library, too shocked to say anything very much. Inspector Curry and his team arrived at 11.30. I'm afraid this must be most upsetting for you all, and I hope not to keep you up too long tonight. You must be particularly concerned for your wife, Mr. Serapel. Thank you for being so considerate, Inspector. Since it was Miss Belliver who found Mr. Goldbranson dead, I'm going to ask her to give me an outline of the general situation, as that will save too much repetition. Of course. Uh, now, is there perhaps some room where we could talk undisturbed? My study, Jolly? I was just about to suggest it. This way, Inspector. Thank you. You are the housekeeper here, I take it, Miss Belliver. And secretary and general factotum, Inspector. I'm sure you manage all your responsibilities most effectively. <laughs> now, I've had the main facts from Mr. Serracold. The dead man, Mr. Christian Goldbranson, was the eldest son of the late Eric Goldbranson, the founder of the Goldbranson Trust and all the rest of it, and Mrs. Serracold's first husband. He was, I understand, one of the trustees of the establishment here, and he arrived unexpectedly yesterday. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Mr. Serracold was away in Liverpool, and he returned this evening at around 6.30. That is so. After dinner, Mr. Goldbranson announced his intention of working in his own room and left the rest of the party in the Great Hall. Yes, he said he had an important letter to write. And was there any particular reason why he had been given a room on the ground floor? He always stayed in that one, to save him trouble with the stairs. Ah, I see. Now, tell me, how you came to discover him dead? There was a rather unpleasant incident earlier this evening. Mm. A young man, a psychopathic case, became very upset and threatened Mr. Serracode with a revolver. He locked them together in this room and eventually let off the revolver. 
You can see the bullet holes in the wall there. But Mr Serracold was not hurt. Fortunately, no. After that, the young man went completely to pieces. Mr Serracold asked me to find one of the doctors to administer a sedative. On the way back, I went to Mr Gulbranson's room to explain what was happening. I knocked, but there was no response, so I opened the door. I saw that Mr Gulbranson was dead, and I telephoned you immediately. Mm. Now, tell me, were the doors to the house secured at that time? Could anyone have come in from the outside without being heard or seen? It is possible. The side door to the terrace is not locked until we go to bed. People come in and go out that way to the college building. And I understand there are about 200 delinquent boys living in the college. Yes, that is so. But the college buildings are well secured. I should say it was most unlikely that anyone could break out. Well, we shall have to check that, of course. Now, Miss Belliver, can you tell me the purpose of Mr Goldbranson's visit? I'm afraid I have no idea. But he was put out to find Mr Serracold absent and decided to wait until he returned. Yes. So his business here was definitely to do with Mr Serracold. I presume it had something to do with the Institute. And did he have a conference with Mr Serracold? Oh, no. There was no time. Mr Serracold didn't get back until just before dinner. But after dinner, before he went off to write his letters, didn't he suggest a talk then? No, he didn't. Wasn't that rather odd, particularly since he came here on purpose to see Mr Serracold? Yes, Inspector. It was very odd. And do you have any idea at what time Mr Goldbranson was killed? I think we may well have heard the shot. It was at 23 minutes past nine. You actually heard a shot? Yes. <laughs> and it didn't alarm you? No. You see, it happened when the young man was locked in here with Mr Serracold. He was threatening to kill him. So it didn't occur to anyone that the shot might actually have come from within the house? No. We were all so relieved, you see, that the shot didn't come from this room. You don't expect murder and attempted murder in the same house on the same night. That's true enough. In fact, when I came to think about it afterwards, I thought it might have been a backfire from Mr. Restrick's car. Mr. Restrick's car? Yes, Mr. Alex Restrick. He arrived by car this evening, just after all this happened. I see. Now, when you discovered Mr. Goldbranson's body, did you touch anything in his room? Oh, no. Naturally, I knew that nothing must be touched or moved. And when you took us into the room on our arrival here, was everything exactly as it had been when you found the body? One thing was different. There was nothing in the typewriter. Uh, you mean that when you first went in, you saw that Mr Goldbranson had been typing a letter and that it had since then been removed? Yes. I'm sure I saw the white edge of the paper sticking up. Thank you, Miss Belliver. Who else went into the room before we arrived? Mr. Serracold, of course, and Mrs. Serracold and Miss Marple. Mrs. Serracold insisted. Who is Miss Marple? The old lady with the white hair. She was a school friend of Mrs. Serracold. She came on a visit about four days ago. Well, perhaps I'll have a word with her before we go any further. It's rather unkind to keep an old lady like that from her bed. This must have been a shock to her. Shall I ask her to come? If you would be so kind. It is so difficult, of course, because if you are looking at one thing, you cannot be looking at another. And one so often looks at the wrong thing, though whether because one happens to do so or whether because one is meant to is very hard to say. Misdirection, the conjurers call it. 
Oh, they're so clever, aren't they? And I never have known how they manage it with a bowl of goldfish, because that really can't fold up small, can it? Hmm. <laughs> Quite so. Now, ma'am, I've had an account of the evening's events from Miss Belliver. First, there was this to-do between Mr. Serracold and Mr. Uh, Lawson. Oh, a very odd young man. I have felt all along that there was something wrong about him. And then, after the excitement was over, we heard about Mr. Gulbranson's death. Did you have much conversation with Mr. Gulbranson? Oh, very little. He asked me about Mrs. Serracold's health, in particular about her heart. Her heart? Is there something wrong with her heart? Nothing whatever, I understand. Did you hear a distant shot this evening during the quarrel between Mr. Serracold and Mr. Lawson? I didn't actually hear it myself because I am somewhat deaf. But Mrs. Serracold thought it came from somewhere outside in the park. And Mr. Gulbranson went off to his room immediately after dinner, I understand. Yes, that's right. He didn't show any desire for a business conference with Mr. Serracold. Oh, no. You see, they'd already had a little talk. Uh, when was that? I was given to understand that Mr. Serracold didn't arrive home until shortly before dinner. That is quite true. But he walked up through the park and Mr. Gulbranson went out to meet him. They had a conversation together on the terrace. Uh, and who else knows this? Oh, probably no one. I just happened to be looking out of my window at some birds. I thought perhaps they might be siskins. Siskins? They're members of the Finch family. Carduelis spinus, I believe. You didn't by any chance happen to overhear anything of what was said? Only fragments, I'm afraid. And could you tell me a little more about these fragments? I do not know what was the actual subject of their conversation, but their immediate concern was to keep whatever it was from the knowledge of Mrs. Serracold. They also spoke of the possibility of taking outside advice. I think, you know, you had better ask Mr. Serracold himself about all that. I shall certainly do so, ma'am. Now, is there anything else that struck you as unusual this evening? There was one little incident. Mr. Serracold stopped his wife from taking her medicine. Miss Belliver was quite put out about it. <laughs> but that, of course, is such a little thing. I understand, Mr. Serracold, that Mr. Goldbranson arrived quite unexpectedly. Yes, I hadn't the least notion he was coming. And you have no idea why he came? Oh, I know why he came. He told me. When? I walked out from the station. He was watching from the house and came out to meet me. It was then he explained what had brought him here. I presume it was something to do with the Institute. Oh, no. It was nothing to do with that. Miss Belliver seemed to think it was. Naturally, and neither Gulbranson nor I did anything to correct that impression. Why was that? Because it seemed important to both of us that no one should know the exact purpose of his visit. And what was the real purpose, Mr. Serracold? I fully realise, Inspector, that with Gulbranson's death, I've got to put all the facts before you, but if you can see your way to keeping what I have to tell you from my wife, I should be very grateful. You see, Christian Gulbranson came here to tell me that he believed my wife was being slowly and deliberately poisoned. What? You can imagine it came as a terrible shock, but as soon as Christian told me, I realised it explained certain symptoms of Caroline's. What she took to be rheumatism, leg cramps and occasional sickness might well be the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. 
Miss Marple told me that Gould Branson asked her about the condition of Mrs. Serracol's heart. Did he? I suppose he was trying to explore any symptoms that could confirm his hypothesis. But did he give you any actual evidence for his suspicions? That was the first question I put to him. But he refused to divulge his source. He said that must wait until he had further proof. Did he say who he thought might be administering the poison? I don't think he actually knew. We were to have discussed it all at greater length tomorrow morning. It now begins to look as though the poisoner realised why Christine had returned to Stenigate. Otherwise, why should he be murdered? He didn't even hint at anyone. No, he didn't. He suggested we should seek the advice of Dr Galbraith, the Bishop of Cromer, one of the trustees of the Institute. But how would he have fitted into it all? The Bishop is a very close and very dear friend of Carrie Louise, and he has a much deeper knowledge and understanding of the family than either Christian... Or, I will freely confess, myself, I, I had the impression that Christian's suspicions were only half-formed, that he was guided by what his mysterious informant had told him. He was hoping that the bishop might be able to give us advice on how to proceed. He was actually typing a letter to Dr Galbraith when he was shot. How do you know that? Because I took the letter out of the typewriter. I have it here. You shouldn't have touched it, Mr. Serical, nor anything else in the room. Everything else is exactly as I found it, and I had a very good reason for removing the letter. I knew all too well that Carrie Louise would insist on seeing Christian's body, and I had no wish for her to see what he'd written. Read it, Inspector. Dear Dr. Galbraith, if it is at all possible, I beg you to come to Stony Gates as soon as you receive this. A crisis of extraordinary gravity has arisen, and I am at a loss how to deal with it. I know how deep your affection is for Carrie Louise, and how grave your concern will be for anything that affects her. How much has she got to know? To come immediately to the point, I have reason to believe that this sweet and innocent lady is being slowly poisoned. I began to suspect this during my last visit to Stony Gates, but it was not until... And at this point, I take it, he was shot dead. So it would appear. Are you certain that he gave no indication as to whom he might have suspected? No. No, none at all. Have you any idea how the poison, supposing that Gulbranson was correct, is being administered? I thought that over while I was changing for dinner. It seemed to me the most likely means was some tonic my wife was taking. We all partake of the same dishes at our meals, and my wife has nothing specially prepared for her. But almost anyone could add poison to her medicine bottle. We'd better get it analysed. Well, I already have a sample of it. Tonight I stopped my wife from taking her usual dose. It's still in a glass on the oak dresser in the great hall. The bottle of tonic itself is in the dining room. You'll forgive me for asking this, Mr. Serical, but why are you so anxious to keep this from your wife? Surely, for her own sake, it would be as well if she were warned. Oh, that may well be so. But I don't think you quite understand. My wife is a completely trustful person. It would be inconceivable to her that anyone should want to kill her. Yes, but even so... But we have to go further than that. It isn't just anyone. Surely you can see it's quite possibly someone very near and dear to her. Think of the people who are living here in this house. Her husband, her daughter, her stepsons whom she regards almost as her own, Miss Belliver, her devoted friend and companion for many years. Don't you see what it would do to her? That's why Christian wanted the bishop to come down here. 
What about young, what's his name, Edgar Lawson? But he's only been here a short time, and what possible motive could he have? Oh, he's clearly unbalanced. What about this attack on you tonight? Sheer childishness. He had no intention of harming me. You don't wish to bring a charge against him? That would be the worst thing possible for him, I mean. And in any case, poor Edgar could hardly have shot Gulbranson. He was in here, threatening to shoot me. Very well, Mr. Saragold. Let's concentrate on who could have killed Gulbranson. Had he any obvious enemies? I should think it most unlikely. He simply was not that sort of man. So it boils down, doesn't it, to this house and the people in it. Which of the people here had the opportunity to kill him? That is difficult for me to say. I suppose from your point of view, all the members of my family are potential suspects. I can only say that as far as I know, everyone was in the Great Hall when Christian went to his room. And while I was there, no one left it. Nobody at all? Oh, yes, yes. Some of the lights fused. Mr. Walter Hudd went to see to it. That's the young American gentleman? Yes. Of course, I have no idea what took place after I came in here with Lawson. Gulbranson was shot with a small automatic pistol. Do you know if anyone in the house has a gun of that kind? I have no idea. I should think it most unlikely. Nevertheless, it must have belonged to someone. But it's, it's getting late. I don't see the need to keep everyone up any longer. Tell them they can all go to bed, and I'll be back here first thing in the morning. I don't think that anyone at Stonygate slept well that night. I certainly did not. And then as I was making my way towards the dining room the following morning... Don't worry, Miss Marple, it's only the police. The police? They're firing off shots in the room where Uncle Christian was killed. I've no idea why. They've been here for ages. They started at half past eight interrogating Alex. Come and have some breakfast. Oh, thank you. Mm. Good morning, Miss Marple. Please, sit yourself down. Oh, thank you. Would you like tea or coffee, Miss Marple? Tea, please. I always think... <sighs> it's all rather like being in a gangster film, isn't it? Except that I gather I'm the top suspect. Don't talk nonsense, Alex. Why should the police suspect you, Mr. Estrick? Well, it seems that I was driving up to the house at exactly the right time last night. And they've been checking up on how long I took between passing the lodge and arriving at the house. The police reckon I had time enough to leave the car, run round the house, go in through the side door, shoot Christian and get back to the car again. So, what's your explanation? What were you really doing? I thought little girls were taught not to ask indelicate questions. <laughs> However, if you really want to know, I was sitting in the car, looking at the effect of the headlights on the fog, and wondering whether I could ever reproduce something like that on the stage. And you don't think the police would accept that as an explanation? I don't think it's very likely, do you? They'd give me one of those long, sceptical looks and say, Thank you, Mr. Estrick. They can't possibly think that one of us killed Uncle Christian. Oh, don't say it must have been a nasty tramp, darling. It's so hackneyed. Miss Marple, I'm sorry to trouble you, but when you've finished your breakfast, will you go to the library? You again, before any of us? Oh, well. Good morning. Good morning, Mildred. Some tea, please, Gina. Nothing to eat, just a little toast. Yes, Aunt Mildred. Where's that husband of yours this morning? I have no idea. I haven't seen him. He's probably hanging around the police. He's absolutely fascinated by them. Must make quite a change for him to be interested in something. 
Well, I'd uh, better be getting over to the theatre. I've got a class for some of the kids and I don't want them hanging about. I'll come and join you later. Young people nowadays. You think he'd at least have the decency to put on a black tie. I don't suppose he knew beforehand that a murder was going to happen, Mildred. But I must be on my way to the library. Miss Marple, I hope I haven't dragged you away from our breakfast. No, but I rather expected... That it was the inspector who wanted to own? Yes. No, they seem to be preoccupied with the details of the shooting. I'm afraid all this must be a terrible shock to you, to be at close quarters with murder. Life in a village is not always as sheltered as people believe. Miss mm. Marble, I want your help. Of course, Mr. Seracold. It's a matter that affects my wife. I know how greatly you are attached to her. Oh, yes, indeed, everyone is. That's what I myself believe, but it seems that I am wrong. I'm going to tell you what Christian Grubranson came here to confide in me, that Caroline is being slowly and quite cold-bloodedly poisoned. I cannot believe it, Mr. Seracold. Surely he must have been mistaken. That was exactly my own reaction. I should have said that Carrie Louise did not have an enemy in the world. But you see the implication, Miss Marple. Poisoning, slow poisoning, is an intimate family matter. It can only be someone in our closely knit little household. Are you telling me that Mr. Gulbranson was right? I fear there's no doubt about it. The police took away Caroline's medicine bottle last night. And the glass I would not let her drink from because of what Christian had told me. There was arsenic in both of them. Then her rheumatism, her difficulty in walking... Yes, leg cramps are typical of the effects of arsenic, I understand. Also, before you came, Caroline had several attacks of a gastric nature. But I never dreamt So that... Ruth was right. Ruth? Caroline's sister. She came to me some weeks ago. She told me that she was worried about Carrie Louise, that she had a premonition that she was in some kind of danger. But she had no idea exactly what. She begged me to come here and find out what was really wrong. That's very strange. I wonder if it could have been Ruth who... Who what, Mr. Seracold? Christian told me his suspicions were based on information given to him by a person he stubbornly refused to name. Was Ruth that person? Has her premonition become a certainty? She said that there was something evil lurking at Stony Gates. None of this is of any importance. The police and I have positive proof, but you can see how I am placed, Miss Marple. Am I to tell Caroline? Oh, no. That's what I feel. That's what Christian felt. But should we feel that with an ordinary woman? Carrie Louise is not an ordinary woman. She lives by her trust, by her belief in human nature. And until we have some inkling of who might be... Yes, I agree. But in the meantime, Caroline's life is still in danger. Uh, do you mean you want me to watch over her? You see, you're the only person I can trust. Everyone here seems devoted to her. But how can I be sure of that now? I know it is a very unpleasant question to put to you, Mr. Seracold, but there are facts which must be faced. Who exactly would benefit if Carrie Louise were to die? Money. It always boils down to money, doesn't it? Well, in this case, there seems no other explanation. A sweet and gentle creature like Carrie Louise could hardly have an enemy. 
so it can only be a question of money. And you don't need me to tell you that people will quite often do anything for money. I fear you're only too right. Inspector Curry has asked Caroline's solicitor to come down from London. He drew up not only her will, but that of her husband, Eric O'Branson. If you would like me to put the whole matter of the legacies in simple terms for you... Yes, thank you, Mr. Serracold. So mystifying the law, I always think. Eric O'Branson after endowing the various colleges and having set up several fellowships and trusts and other charitable bequests, settled equal sums on his daughter Mildred and his adopted daughter Pippa. Gina's mother? Yes. And the remainder of his enormous fortune was left in trust, the income to be paid to Caroline for her lifetime. And after her death? It was to be divided equally between Mildred and Pippa or to their children if they themselves predeceased Caroline. So, in fact, this very considerable sum of money will now go to Mildred and Gina. Yes. And Caroline has a sizable fortune of her own. They're not exactly in the Colbranson class. Half of this she made over to me four years ago. Of the remainder, she's left £10,000 to Juliet Belliver, and the rest to be divided equally between Alex and Stephen Resterick, her two stepsons. Oh, dear. That is bad. That's very bad. What do you mean by that, Miss Marple? It means that everyone in the house has a financial motive. I'm afraid that's undeniable. And yet I cannot believe that any of these people would even contemplate murdering Caroline. Mildred's already well provided for, as is Gina. And the two restrict boys simply worship their stepmother. If it were not for the evidence of the medicine bottle, I would reckon that Christian had somehow made a ghastly mistake. There is one person in your family you've not mentioned. Is there? Oh, of course, Gina's husband. I'd completely forgotten him. One can't help seeing that Walter Hudd is a very unhappy man. He hasn't fitted in here. It's true he's no interest or sympathy in what we're trying to do. But after all, why should he? He's young and crude and comes from a country where a man is esteemed by the success he makes of his life. <laughs> Whilst we are very fond of failures... I think sometimes, you know, one can overdo things the other way. I mean, young people brought up wisely in a good home and with grit and pluck and the ability to get on in life. Well, when one comes down to it, they are really the sort of people a country needs. But surely one cannot simply... Not that I don't appreciate the really noble work you're doing here. But don't you think the English are rather inclined to make too much of their failures and defeats? Foreigners can never understand why we are so proud of Dunkirk. And look at the charge of the Light Brigade. What I really mean is, everything here must seem rather peculiar to young Walter Hudd. Yes, I quite see your point, and the boy certainly has a very fine war record. There's no doubt about his bravery. Not that that helps very much, because war is one thing and everyday life is quite another. And to commit murder... I suppose a certain amount of bravery is needed, or at least a great deal of conceit. But surely the boy does not have any real motive. Why not? He hates it here. He wants to get away. And if it really is money he wants, it would be important to get Gina away before she forms an attachment to somebody else. What on earth do you mean by that? Surely you must have noticed. Both the Resterick brothers are in love with her. Oh, you're imagining things, Miss Marple. I don't think I am. And what if Gina is in love with one of them? 
Wouldn't she want to move heaven and earth to get rid of her husband? Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Marple, but all this is quite preposterous. Is it? As I told you, money makes people do preposterous things, and there is a great deal of it at stake. I don't like greed, and I don't like murder, and I am going to watch over Carrie Louise as if my own life depended upon it. You can count on that, Mr. Seracold. I believe you, Miss Marple. And whatever else may happen, I rest secure in the knowledge that Caroline will be safe in your hands. In part three of Agatha Christie's They Do It With Mirrors, Miss Marple was played by June Whitfield. Louis Seracold, Peter Howell, Inspector Curry, Keith Barron. Mildred Street, Natasha Pine, Gina Hudd, Rebecca Lacey, Alex Resterick, Nick Waring, Juliet Belliver, Paula Jacobs. They Do It With Mirrors is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs>